0: On this episode of Ventures by the Lake, we talk to Sophia Wensett, CEO of Blip Energy. Blip Energy makes a smart home battery that allows users to take advantage of paying for electricity during off-peak hours, as well as build a more sustainable and reliable electric grid. Listen in to learn why Sophia decided to make the switch from working at Roomba and designing vacuum robots to building her own smart battery company. Hope you enjoy.
1: Chicago is home to some well-established names in U.S. business. Innovation is so important because
2: it really is what drives the economic growth of the city. To celebrate its mm-hmm. emerging status mm-hmm. as an innovation
1: hub. But their potential is, what is
2: Welcome back to another episode of Ventures by the Lake. Today we are joined by Sophia Winsett of Blip Energy. Uh, Sophia is the co-founder and CEO. So so Sophia, I would love um, to just learn a little bit more about what Blip is and what Blip does.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you guys so much for having me. So at Blip, we're building a new category of product. We're building a smart home battery. Uh, It doesn't really exist today in this way. So it's something that belongs in a modern living room, can provide critical backup power uh, and help folks save money on their energy bill at the same time we're able to aggregate that capacity and provide grid operators with tools and data that they need to lower their cost of operations and stabilize the grid overall so this is something that works really well for apartments condos folks that are looking for a more flexible solution not a whole home battery system not a permanently installed thing Uh, a portable battery but it's sleek wi-fi enabled um, and can can help in a lot of different ways that's really
0: interesting and we have a few companies in our latest Techstars class that are also focused on that decentralized grid and grid resiliency thing. And I, I think that's just becoming a theme as a whole too that's popped up over the last few years. And I think that's really cool. I'm interested to hear from you, how did this idea come about? Have you always been interested in energy? Like yeah. where where did this start?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So my I say that I'm a recovering mechanical engineer. So my background was in uh, mechanical engineering. I worked on Roomba. So I built robot vacuum cleaners. Right out of college, spent a lot of time flying back and forth to Southeast Asia, standing up manufacturing. Um, So I understand at least uh, not in every capacity, but in a number of different facets, like how you build an IOT consumer product. Um, But I really wanted to focus on something that I am really passionate about. Um, So I actually went back to grad school, wanted to have more of a hand in what are we building? Who are we building it for and why? and not just how do we optimize this gear system or like what size does this spring need to be, which is a lot of what the day-to-day of being a mechanical engineer was. So I wanted to be able to solve the bigger problems. Um, And was
0: that in the context of Roomba when you said understand like what we're building and who we're building it for? Were you talking about Roomba then or?
1: Yeah, so I think when I was working as a sort of individually contributing mechanical engineer, I had a desire to work on the larger problem um what are we building who are we building it for and i think i realized that that's the direction i wanted my career to go Mm -hmm. whether at Rimba or elsewhere so um that was when i sort of realized i want to pivot out of engineering i want to have more of a seat at the table when those types of decisions are being made in order to do that i need to learn a lot more about all the factors that are influencing those decisions so that's what ultimately took me back to grad school to learn about all of the other sort of parts of the business
0: that's great. And I kind of want to dive down that hole for a second, because I think there's a lot of people out there who are in a similar situation where yeah. they might feel that what they're working on, they can't see the direct impact of that. And they'd like to be able to be working on that bigger picture problem. What, can you kind of talk me through the timeline of how, how, when did you realize that that was something you did want to be working on? Was it like you were yeah. sitting at work one day and you're like, what am I making? What am I doing? And then and then, what was the process like? How long did it take for you to figure out that I do want to get out of this and work on that, those bigger problems?
1: That's a great question. Um, I think there were a couple of different uh, checkpoints, milestones in that sort of process <laughs> of figuring out like, what do I want to be when I grow up basically? <laughs> um, I also like, I, I come from a, my grandpa was an electrical engineer. My uncle's an electrical engineer. I. Was a kid who like wanted to be an engineer when she grew up. I would like go to the like Lego robot summer camp and stuff like that. So did I, you did you do Lego League? Was that a I thing? didn't do Lego League. It was through this like Bright Lights. They gotcha. Did. Yeah. yeah. But um, but I did all all those kinds of things growing up. And I I went to college for mechanical engineering. I got a job as a mechanical engineer. So I spent all that time being like, yes, I did it. I went to college. I got this degree. I got a job as a mechanical engineer making robots that go in people's houses. Like this is the coolest thing. I could possibly be doing and yet i was unfulfilled um and so there was a lot of cognitive dissonance around like this is what like this was the goal like you did it you mm-hmm. made it this was this is what you wanted to do um but i think when you're actually in it on a day-to-day basis it, it that the dream job isn't always exactly what you think it's gonna be um so that was one sort of like simmering feeling um i think the surprising result of the 2016 election um, had a big impact on me, just on like feeling even more like, what am I doing? Like, what am I doing to help my fellow man? Like, what am I doing? Like I'm making robots and it's super cool, but is it really helping like people (laughs) in the world more broadly? Um, So that was when I started to think more and more about like, okay, this this is really cool and I've learned a lot and I've gotten, I've got this great technical background how can I use that to further a cause that I am more passionate about than robotic vacuum cleaners? Um, and then I actually transitioned from being just a mechanical engineer to and sort of trying to figure out like, what do I want to do? Like, okay, maybe I don't want to be an engineer, like what what mm-hmm. what is the answer? Um I took over our uh, this big packaging redesign program um, still as an engineer, but uh, it was it was a project that no one really wanted to raise their hand for. but I saw it as an opportunity to see something different to try something different. And at the end of the day packaging hits every part of the business. It's operations, it's marketing, it's logistics, it's the unboxing experience. So it's it's design and user experience, it's it's finance, um, And so I had a really cool opportunity there. We were designing, um, basically, just trying to consolidate a bunch of disparate packages. Every time they released a new robot, they would release a fully, completely different package. So mm-hmm. we we're like, "All right, this is not efficient. How can we redesign something that will actually like one box that fits everything, and then we put different things on the outside?" Like this doesn't have to be so complicated. Um, so it was, it was a pretty big undertaking. We were transitioning to all recyclable materials, and that was my first glimpse at all of those other stakeholders and all of those other parts of the organization that have a hand in making the decisions of like, who is this for? Why are we doing this? How are we doing it? And that was when I realized, okay, this is super cool. I love solving a problem with all of this context. And I need to learn a lot more about the drivers of all of these different contexts if I'm gonna be effective in doing that. So that was ultimately when I decided to go back to grad school um, and get a master's in business and really learn like, okay, when operations is talking about like operational efficiency, like what do they mean? Like what's the theory behind that? What are the drivers and like how do, how do we, not only how do we manage those stakeholders, but like how do we make good decisions <laughs> based on that? Um, which you don't, you don't know until you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that was sort of the, the trajectory. And then wanted to move into clean tech Um, I think I'm passionate about a lot of things. Um, I'm really passionate about like STEM education equity is something that I've also been really involved in. Um, passionate about like equity generally across a lot of different, uh, facets, but I think clean tech and climate tech is a way that I can take that passion for equity and also the valuable and real technical background that I have and actually like bring value to that space. Whereas if I was gonna try and move into education. Like, I don't know how to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was sort of how I ended up on this path of building a product in the clean tech space to try and solve a, a problem around the equity of energy. Um, so is clean it was yeah. so
0: clean tech and climate tech, was that something that was sitting in the back of your head when you went to grad school or did that come about when you were there? I guess, yeah. When first of all, that decision to go to grad school, is that the natural jump or was that something you were considering among a few different options? And then when you did, did you have the intention of returning to Roomba and then it just went a different direction or how did that work out?
1: Yeah. I, I, I got to a point where going to grad school was the, uh, felt like for what I wanted to do, which Mm -hmm. was move out of the engineering silo and get, a better sense of all of the different business orgs and how they work and why they Mm -hmm. run. Um, Going to get a degree in that, like getting a business degree to learn how businesses work was frankly the most efficient way to make that pivot. There are other ways to do it. Like I was sort of in the process of it when I took on the packaging project and I moved on to, um, I was project managing the design and user experience group for a bit before Mm -hmm. I actually left and went to grad school. Um, So I think you can definitely, turn slowly if you're in that position right where Mm -hmm. you're like I'm an engineer I don't want to do this anymore or any version of that um you can turn slowly but I was like you know I want to I want to do this quick and I have Mm -hmm. frankly like the the privilege and the ability to go to a grad program and be able to do that um so it was a, a more efficient way to make that pivot I was thinking about clean tech, but I wasn't like, I'm doing a pivot so that I can work in clean tech. Uh Was it like, Um, I want to
0: start a business in clean tech or was it, I just want to work? Okay.
1: It was, I I thought that I would end up in a strategy role at some kind of renewable energy company or Mm -hmm. something. But I also was, I think, keeping my eyes open, I didn't even really know like the breadth of roles that were available. Um, So I was sort of toying with the idea of moving into sort of clean tech renewables um, and wanted to move into more of a, like, strategy, what are we doing and why are we doing it type of function. Um, I did not go to grad school, frankly, thinking that I was going to start a business. Um, I think that came with the idea. Um, I think that, the like, number one thing that I've learned being a founder is that when something, I think before I was a founder, I presumed that things didn't exist because they're a bad idea or it's not possible or it's not profitable or whatever it is. And like really it's just, those could be true but it's also just that no one's done it. And that was a big turning point I think for me. And like if this doesn't exist because it's a bad idea or the wrong idea, no one's done it yet. So let's like keep running down this path until we find a reason that it can't work.
0: Gotcha, sorry, I was a little bit distracted. There's a baby crying. We have <laughs> a baby <I> underneath <laughs> us. <laughs> sounds very unhappy, yes. but um, that's that's okay.
2: That's all good.
0: Did you have anything to go on that?
2: No, so transitioning into that, um, I'd love to dive more into like, as as you were transitioning in those grad school years, um, like realizing that clean tech focus, when was it, uh, was it a class? Um, was it meeting some potential co-founders, yeah. uh, future co-founders that it was like, the the seed started of business?
1: Yeah, it was in uh, an innovation elective. Um, focused on energy, so there were a few different sort of flavors. It Invenergy. It was uh Nuvention. and gotcha, newvention, yeah. yeah. Um,
0: I think that's what I meant. I, yeah, Invenergy's anyway. That's yeah. a solar company.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, so it was it was in that class. They have some of the lab folks come and present on new technologies they're building, or you can bring your own idea. And I just had a hypothesis. I've always lived in apartments and condos, and I have no options when the power goes out. Um, and so it was, I think I made the, the classic founder mistake of like solving a problem for yourself, right? Like you can't be your only customer, but I came with this hypothesis around like, why, why is this? (laughs) Like why this is more than half the country falls into this bucket of folks that don't fit into the whole home, Tesla, LG, Sonnen, like $50,000 whole home battery system customer segment.
0: Yeah, and you can't throw a big generator out back if you're in a condo. Right, yeah. exactly.
1: And so why like why is that? Like why has this whole giant portion of the market gone unserved by like energy innovation? Turns out there are a lot of reasons, but they're all kind of converging right now and we're trying to take advantage of that. Um so I just brought that hypothesis and we digged into it a little digged dug into it a little bit more. Um and said, Okay, can can it be built? Is it is it possible from a regulatory perspective? Is it possible from a financial perspective, how can we add uh, value to the good? What do people, do people actually want this? Like, am I the only person that worries about this? Is everybody else mm-hmm. just like living their life and being fine? Um, but that was where we really started to dig in and find like, no, there aren't other solutions out there. Yes, this is a real problem. Um, and one of the turning points for me actually was, uh, I actually don't remember what, which storm it was, but couple consecutive weeks there were news articles of um whole families that ran a gas generator in their living room or in their garage and had multiple or all all of the family members pass away from carbon monoxide poisoning and that was that was a big moment for me of okay this isn't just an inconvenience Mm -hmm. right this isn't just like oh no i can't use my wi-fi like the lack of a the lack of an energy solution that actually meets people where they're at, means that people are dying <laughs> because mm-hmm. they're trying mm-hmm. to keep power accessible to their family. Um, and There's are, room
0: for a lot of impact there. Right, and they yeah. don't have any
1: other option. Um, so that was, that was sort of the turning point on like, all right, this isn't just a class project anymore. This mm-hmm. is something that I'm really passionate about and I'm gonna keep pursuing until I can't anymore.
0: So I think a lot of people get excited by the idea that they see a problem that exists and there's not really any existing leaders in the solution space. I've learned over the last few years that sometimes it's actually better to approach those situations with hesitancy Mm -hmm. instead of excitement because if there's a problem that obviously exists and there's nothing there to solve it, there's probably a reason. How did you think about that going new? Did that ever cross your mind of, well, why is there this problem that exists and there's not really a solution? Like People have had to think about this before
1: constantly um i think yes uh yes and so mm-hmm. i th- i think that's that's the constant uh like back and forth of being a founder right i have this great idea i've i've found this oppor- like i've identified this opportunity area i think that's sort of what i was saying though around um it's not necessarily that it's a bad idea it's just that no one's right. done it yet for a variety of reasons i think also having worked at larger Um, companies they're not always thinking about innovation from the ground up so like Mm -hmm. what we one of the things we found was like in energy the way that energy innovation has sort of gone is we've taken the solutions that work for big commercial and industrial energy problems and tried to sort of scale them down and apply them to households but households aren't commercial and industrial problems. Mm-hmm. Um, like the problems that a household have and the problems that a target have are completely different. Um, and so I think one of the ways that we approached it differently than a lot of other purveyors of consumer energy products is we said, all right, pretend we don't know anything. What do, what do people actually want? What do they actually need? Like what are what are the jobs, what are the jobs to be done um when the power goes out? For our household and then what are the um, what are the ways that we can leverage so I met my co-founder chance who has a background in energy policy and basically optimizing utility operations. Um, and so he brings all of that knowledge about energy system value. So what we were able to do is actually we're able to offer the the hardware at a lower cost than just like a camping battery that you could buy at Home Depot um because we're aggregating and leveraging the the value to the energy system in addition to the value to the household um because i think one of the big barriers was cost so that was something we looked at too was like on the timeline maybe this didn't make sense five years ago like maybe a company investigated this five years ago and the cost of batteries plus the cost of manufacturing plus like the reality of outages like didn't converge to make a profitable or viable solution Mm-hmm. um not feasible not viable for whatever reason but i think that that's where startups can really take a different perspective um because things have changed a lot in the last 5 years 2022 saw more power outages in the us than any other year in since we started keeping track um the cost of batteries has gone way down so it's a lot more viable to build a smaller consumer solution that can actually provide uh commensurate value to the cost of the product right you don't have to charge ten thousand dollars for a little battery that can run your fridge for one to two days you can charge less than a thousand dollars um so i think a lot of those things are changing as well but that's that's sort of how we approached it is like that was the first thing we looked at like why doesn't this exist like why hasn't anyone done this um and we found some reasons why it may not have made sense in the past and also some reasons why we thought that it was it was viable today
2: yeah, anything else on that or I was mm-hmm. going to... Yeah, you were going to say something? Yeah, um, so with customer discovery, yeah. um, you said at the beginning too, like this is a problem for yourself. Mm-hmm. And I've been talking to so many founders lately about like their customer discoveries and how did you go about like making a plan, setting up your strategic approach to your yeah. customer discovery?
1: Yeah. Conveniently, I was in a graduate program that was focused on human-centered design. Um, so I had a lot of really good, both mentors and, and frameworks for setting that up. Um, and was actually taking courses where I got reps on, all right, how do you lead a customer discovery process without leading the person you're interviewing into giving you the answer that you want? Because what you really want to figure out is, uh, the sort of the paradigm of, uh, is it a painkiller? Is it a vitamin? Is it something that people really need or is it just a nice to have? Um, and so we did a lot of online interviews. Um, We did a lot of sourcing within the university community, also just like online. Um, We got (laughs) accidentally banned from Reddit a couple times because we just like- Yeah, that's like the rite of passage. Right, like if you're not banned from Reddit, like you're not trying hard enough. Um, Just trying to find folks to talk to and we even, we keep doing it. So that was in 2020. We did a big study this summer. talking to folks with critical medical devices specifically as a niche market um we talked to one guy who uses uh like a car battery that you'd pick up at like napa auto parts and connects it to uh like the kind of inverter that you could like take in your car to like go on a long road trip and that's how he powers his sleep apnea machine when the power goes up um so people are like jerry-rigging solutions to this (laughs) that are Mm -hmm. not Uh, ideal or tailor-made but yeah i i I do think it's tough i think there's a lot of good programs out there too like icor um sets up really really good frameworks but i would say i used a lot of the resources that i that i learned in my grad program on how to set up an interview in order to get the real answers not the answers that you want to hear because it's a a natural human thing Mm -hmm. right people want
2: people want to tell
1: you the thing that they think that you want to hear. you want that
2: validation too of oh i was right
1: right exactly and that can be the toughest thing too um so finding ways to ask about a lot of the interviews we didn't even talk about what we were building um so like many of our initial interviews and even still with the one we did last summer we just talked generally about okay the power goes out like what do you do the power imagine the power has just gone out what are your first thoughts what are your concerns um as the day goes on, maybe the power doesn't come back on. Like, what are your next steps? Um, is this something that you're worried about? Um, what are the what are the top, like, three things that you would... Pri- if you had a backup power, like, what is... If you could back up one thing in your house, um, what would you prioritize? Um, and those kinds of things help us with, with, like, market sizing as well. But that was sort of how we started to set it up.
0: So you threw out a, a term a little bit ago and... We glossed over it, but yeah. we're big fans around here of jobs to be done and yeah. and Bob Mesta and Clay Christensen and everything. There is that a framework that you used?
1: Yeah, yeah, it is, and, and we continue to. We're working on setting up the the user app right now, and it's like, okay,
0: mm-hmm. what
1: what are the jobs to be done when we're setting up the app? We need to know um, the obviously like who they are, where they are. We need to know what utility plan they're on, so that we can get them integrated into some of the bill saving mm-hmm. programs. Um, they need to know that the product is working. <laughs> like knowing that it's on is a job to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, we we try to think about it that way. Cause I think it really distills it down to the core most thing. It's easy mm-hmm. to start designing a screen or designing an app, and you start to get too focused on like features. What's the button say? Mm-hmm. Where does it go? What are the features exactly? And it's like, okay, but but to uh I was going to say to what extent and that's not uh, to what to what end right like what are the features for like what what are we actually trying to accomplish Mm -hmm. versus just like what are we able to do
0: yeah so I mean quick uh, overview for most people probably listening who don't know what jobs to be done is or maybe only colloquially jobs to be done is a framework that was co-designed by Clay Christensen who is a professor at Harvard Business School and Bob Mesta who is this really cool guy who I definitely encourage you to check out, but the basic idea of jobs to be done as a customer discovery framework is exactly what Sophia said of diving right into, like, why are people actually hiring products or solutions to solve their problems? And it relies on this idea that if a problem exists, people are probably already trying to solve it. And at least the people on the, the very cutting edge of the ones who care the most about the problem so if you can do the work to figure out how they're currently trying to solve it and what they're doing and why they're paying money and why they're you know paying effort and time in order to do these things then you can probably work backwards from that and figure out how you can design a solution that solves the same job or problem in a better way and that's a very oversimplified way of looking at it there's lots of other things that you can get out of it too but we'll link a few different resources in the description, such as a book called The Man Side Sales and, and a few other things. Um, so you can check it out.
1: Yeah, that was a great overview. Nice work. Yeah,
2: I, I'm conditioned <laughs> to do that. I've done it a few times before, but- There you go. Awesome. So moving on to like that next stage, when did you, I mean, you started this when you were at um, Northwestern Grad School. Mm-hmm. When did the day come or when did it happen when you said, I'm gonna be full-time on this project, um, and when did it really become Blip Energy?
1: Yeah. So we, uh, we converted to a C-corp at the beginning of 2022. Um, so that was one marker of like now it's real. Um, but really, honestly, I – so I took some time off during school and worked at Tesla as a product manager for – at their residential energy business. Um, so I was, my product was the portal where you enter your address and your utility bill and the back end spits out a recommendation on the size of an energy system. So solar panels, batteries, um, wraps in all the incentives that are available. Uh, and I learned a ton about where people fall out in that process. Um, what people are thinking about, what people aren't thinking about. Um, I worked directly with a lot of the the channel business, so I worked with the like mom and pop solar installers that are installing some of these products in the markets where Tesla doesn't operate directly, um, and that was a really, a really really cool experience that I'm extremely grateful to have had. Um, and I think so. The moment when I was like, I'm I'm going full time on Blip and not pursuing something else was when I needed to start thinking about what was what was after grad school. Um, so it was when I really came back from that. Um, sabbatical, for lack of a better term, uh, and I was like, "All right, am I recruiting or am I doing this?" And I was, it, it at that point, honestly, like it, it was not so much of a question. Um, I think spending time working on the problem at at Tesla from a different perspective made it really clear to me that there was there was meat to the other side of the problem that we were trying to solve. Like, I don't think that we're competing with them in any way. I think we're <laughs> we're targeting a completely different segment of the market like we're, we're actually specifically targeting the people that that type of whole home system is not well suited for um so i technically came on <laughs> i'll say i was working full weeks on blip long before i was done with my grad program <laughs> i was definitely like doing uh I don't know, full-time, full-time everything. I had multiple full-time jobs. I was a full-time student and I was also a full-time founder for a good bit. So
0: Um, Sorry, I did not want to put you off there. What did that early full-time look like? Like, I assume this was pre-product. Like, what was that day-to-day? What were you working on? What were your biggest rocks?
1: Yeah, so it was a lot of, it was a lot of the customer discovery. Um, It was a lot also of business development. Um, We ran a Pre-sale test that was a ton of work and then it was also some tech development um so can we actually answering the questions around like can we build this for a because we did we also did like a pricing sensitivity test so still scoping out a lot of the feasibility things mm-hmm. around can we what what is the monetary value or willingness to pay for this um we actually decided not to price on willingness to pay, um, because equity and accessibility is such a core part of our business. Um, our goal is cost parity with a gas generator, um, so that no one has to run a gas generator and get carbon monoxide mm-hmm. poisoning ever again. Um, so, when you're making that decision, you're like, all right, I don't, I can't, I don't have any other energy options, and you're deciding between a gas generator and a battery. You can choose a blue. Um, but doing a lot of that sort of, okay, so we know what people will pay, we know what we want to charge for it. Can we build it at that price? Um, what are the energy programs and incentives that are available that we can wrap into that? So doing not only customer discovery, but also partner discovery, um, utilities, doing the customer presale test, realizing that direct to consumer is actually not a great initial go-to-market strategy for us because it's tough to target people geographically. Um, so we want to be really geographically targeted with our um, initial deployments so that we can m- make the most value to the grid overall as sort of aggregated nodes on the smart grid. Um, so all of that was happening, uh, <laughs> frankly, before I graduated in mm-hmm. June of 22 or whatever it was. Um, but it was it was a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of discovery and discovery is a, a perpetual process, right? Yeah. You never stop discovery because things also change a lot. Like people's attitudes towards energy and the grid have changed a lot since 2020. Um, general awareness of grid vulnerability. I think people are a lot more concerned, not only about weather related outages, but about potential like bad actor related outages, um, about the fact that energy prices are going up um so like outages are becoming more frequent weather events are becoming more sporadic energy prices are going up and that's just all more in the public consciousness so we're Mm -hmm. redoing a bunch of the research we did originally um but that was that was a lot of initial days was just making sure that continuing to make sure that we could build and deliver a thing that was providing value to customers and to grid stakeholders Mm -hmm.
2: so speaking like on that public consciousness and like that growing market since 2020 um like now that you're full-time founder, you're building this out with your co-founder chance. Mm-hmm. Like what has been some of like the biggest hurdles? I know like investment is like a huge part yeah. of like growing and scaling a startup, especially when it's hard tech and that development takes a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. So I would love to, to hear your thoughts on that and touch on that.
1: Yeah. I think also the investment environment has changed a lot since 2020 <laughs> in kind of the opposite direction. Um, so, we're building batteries like it's a cap. we're building a physical product it's a capital intensive uh process so we number one we want investors that are comfortable and familiar with that um we don't want to bring people on that are not comfortable with the fact that we are building a physical thing um we've also been really fortunate and worked really hard uh and just got a uh, a grant from or we were selected for a grant from the department of energy So that's going to be able to cover a lot of the heavy R&D costs, um, which de-risks that from sort of a capital allocation standpoint. Um, But I think what's been tough for us is that we're building a new category of thing. So you first have to get people on board with what you're building, why it matters. um, Why do people care about this? I think also a lot of investors are not necessarily our target customer. and so that can be a tough thing where they're like, well, I don't need this in my house. I have a whole home solar system. I'm like, okay, well maybe it's not for you. Like that's, that's okay. (laughs) That doesn't mean it's not for most people. Like you're probably in the 1%. Um, So that's, that can be some tough education as well. Um, But really true. Like the, the, when you take like all of the available investment uh, opportunities and then you narrow it down by those that are comfortable with hardware and comfortable with more capital-intensive development and narrows the field a lot. Um, I think something that I believe really strongly is that we live in a built environment, right? Like in order to have, continue, not just to continue to have a habitable planet, but like to continue to have a functional energy system, it's going to require utility scale upgrades. It's also going to require demand side and bottom-up upgrades, right? It's home electrification, like that's going to be really important. In order to do that, we need to modulate the way that we transfer energy and think about energy overall. Um, and that's going to require hardware solutions, and there are going to be winners in that space. Um, so it's something that I am I'm hoping to convey is that uh, it's a really exciting time to be investing in hardware in the clean tech space, because we're at a pivotal moment where solutions are being adopted and scaled that are really necessary, and there are going to be winners, so it's like, do you want to be on that cap table or not? Um, Rather than sort of shying away from some of the more complexities of hardware. I think for every software company, like a lot of times they need a hardware endpoint to call. Like You can't just live in a software world, we live in a physical built environment. So we're really proud to be building the hardware endpoints that enable the whole energy transition.
0: Yeah. And, and that's really cool too. And and you mentioned earlier, you're just doing all of this discovery work. I mean, on yeah. the customer discovery side, like it, just looking at each of those little points along the way and trying to find the proof points for why this will work. And it, I feel like that's awesome. And it's really cool because with software say like, I could just go build out an MVP in two weeks and type it up and it cost me nothing. It cost me two weeks, but it cost me nothing. I can, yeah. I can do that and I can sacrifice those two weeks. Whereas with hardware, you know even if you're going to build an MVP you still have to go buy the battery right, right. and i yep. g- guessing they're not cheap if you want to like power things on the scale of a home so it, doing that extra work to make sure that it's like this is there's a good chance that this works is is definitely just twisting odds in your favor
1: and that we're building i think that's why we focus so much on what do people want like mm-hmm. what do people want sitting in their living room mm-hmm. on an average day like it's not something that's chunky and bright orange and has rubber corners and looks like it belongs in a garage. Like we want it to look more like a Dyson Tower fan, more like a Roomba, frankly, like more like something that belongs in a modern home. Um, we changed our the form factor that we were going after a lot after um, doing a bunch of customer discovery. We thought it should be like kind of small and like squatty and like a suitcase. And immediately everyone was like smallest footprint possible. Like, I don't want this to take up space. Mm-hmm. So then we went to this tower form factor, which makes a ton more sense. But those are all the questions you have to answer before you start cutting tools because if you just build something the way you think it should be and start sourcing and cutting tools and making physical product and then start testing with customers like you've wasted a lot of time and energy Mm -hmm. i think also getting things in front of people as soon as possible is really important um but i i do think to your point yeah for physical product i think it is important to to do your due diligence on making sure that you're building something that people want yeah. And definitely. then build it and put it in front of them and test that, that you were right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and
0: also not to, or like not saying it's not important to do it on the software side. It's just, there's that extra constraint of almost a forcing function on the hardware side. Whereas mm-hmm. you're probably much better off to do it anywhere else too.
2: It's just, you know, you might not feel the pain immediately from that. Yeah. Cause it's not just about the time. It yeah. really, it's the cost of materials, the engineering labs that are not easy to get time in and can be expensive. Um, so that's definitely a major yeah. factor. You don't want
1: to spend a well. million dollars cutting a molded plastics tool and then realize you were completely wrong. <laughs> yeah.
0: So um just a this is kinda on a tangent here, but I'm just interested. Yeah. So have you talked to anyone who's rigged up their condo or an apartment with a battery and mm-hmm. they've been like, I'm just gonna fix this myself, I'm gonna do it. Yeah. You have. Yeah. What are some of the challenges that they face while doing that?
1: Yeah. Um so a lot of it is so there's a couple of things. Um one is just around like form factor and sort of designed function. Mm-hmm. Um I think that tailgate batteries are not necessarily designed tailgate batteries are camping batteries, right? Like mm-hmm. it's got a bunch of different ports and it's sort of meant to be for going camping and having extra power and other things. Like those aren't necessarily designed um to be sitting in your home. Um for reasons like of them- reasons
0: beyond just aesthetically or
1: Primarily aesthetically, mostly in terms of doing the intelligent switching on the back end. So that's the other gotcha. yeah, main, that's a, yeah. um value that we can provide is to set up like an intelligent schedule so that you connect a few devices to this product and then you don't have to go around and turn it on and turn it off. And so we have talked to folks that have set it up on their own, but they're they're very handy like software folks who know how to write the program to mm-hmm. do it themselves. Um, there are more and more camping batteries with APIs um, that are available, or with apps that are starting to get into. Like they're starting to move into the space. So we're starting to really make sure that we have a strong competitive moat around um, some of the partnerships that we have that allow us to keep the cost of the hardware lower lower than market um, with utilities, with other grid partners, with our distribution channels. Um, so those are all parts of sort of our competitive moat against that. Um, but yeah, then I've talked to a lot of people that are like, oh yeah, I signed up for real-time pricing. And my, well, I'm gonna say like most of them are dudes. Most of them are like software dudes. Um, they're like, oh yeah, I signed up for real-time pricing and I set up real-time all these Real-time pricing plugs. with energy. Real-time pricing with energy, yeah. yes. So uh, it can fluctuate, especially in Chicago, like it can fluctuate pretty wildly.
0: So you can pay different prices for the energy you use at different, like during peak hours, it's gonna cost more interval. than,
1: yeah, yeah, gotcha. Um. And then people are running around their house like unplugging things. And they're like, "Ah, oh, my wife hates it when I tell her she like can't do laundry because the price is spiking or whatever." And I think ultimately, it's a huge like mental and emotional burden to be like constantly keeping track of the energy price and being like, oh, I can't run the dishwasher right now. I got to do it later." So one of the big values that we aim to provide is to make that seamless. Um, set it and forget it. Mm-hmm. Plug it in with a high load appliance, and we'll keep track of all that in the background and modulate the appliance won't know the difference we're modulating whether it's pulling power from the wall or the battery um so doing that sort of almost arbitrage
0: and you can put a number on it you can you can see directly it saved me this amount of money last month
1: yeah yeah and that all goes to end customers so we're not taking any kind of cut on their Mm -hmm. bill savings if that battery is called to participate in like a load balancing event we'll do a revenue share on um because utilities will pay basically pay for the aggregated capacity it's a 100 degree day everyone's turning on their air conditioners Mm -hmm. right now they ask people to just turn their air conditioners off so i think like the customer quality of life is a big reason that a lot of these other programs have not traditionally been super successful is that it's a 100 degree degree day no one wants to turn their air conditioning off like Mm -hmm. that's exactly what they don't want to do that's why we're having a problem on the grid in the first place Mm um so that's where we get that sort of other revenue stream
0: yeah that's that's really interesting do you have anything left?
1: nothing from there
2: um yeah i was just, just another topic well i was i was
0: just gonna ask like where are you guys right now what are your biggest challenges going forward and what's yeah. what's the next six months look like for for blue energy
1: yeah so we are deploying some field units this winter um running in chicago uh with space heaters. so these are uh Beta units. Um, we're doing doing the unscalable thing. It's like a startup thing. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I've become so uh, entrenched in like startup jargon that mm-hmm. uh, it just comes out of me now. Um, to prove that we can do basically what you just said of like save money on energy bills, we know that it works on paper, right? We know that we know the cost of the energy coming from the wall. We know the efficiency of the system. We know what the cost would otherwise be when the battery's dispensing power. Mm -hmm. So we can model that all in a spreadsheet. In theory,
0: it works 100% of the time. In theory, it works 100% of the time.
1: Um,
0: In practice. But building
1: them, putting them in people's houses, and seeing what some of the hiccups are that we haven't anticipated. Um, So we are really heads down on getting those built and out in the field. Um, And then we'll be looking to do another raise to supplement the Department of Energy grant. So we'll be opening up that raise early next year. and that'll really be funding not as much the i think the R and D is pretty covered by the department of energy everything else is like commercialization and, and scaling mm-hmm. um which is not what the grant is intended to do
2: will that raise be a seed or series a
1: so that will be a pre-seed, pre-seed? so okay. yes yeah, so we're raising a two million pre-seed. pre-seed awesome yeah
2: very exciting um one other thing i really wanted to touch on too is uh how has the Chicago ecosystem really helped and like support you? It's kind of cool, a little background here. Yeah. We first met when I was a, an employee at Generator, you going mm-hmm. through the Generator program um, from my time. That's at, a funny name, too, Generator. Like, any, yeah. anyway. A generator sorry. at Generator? That is yeah. kind of funny. I didn't even think about that. Um, even when I was at P33, you were a P33 TechRise founder. And now yeah. here at M you've gone through uh, the M Hub Climate Energy Program, the first one mm-hmm. with um, managing uh, executive director uh um at the helm there and are just a huge part of the chicago ecosystem at every organization that i've touched so oh, i'd like cool. love to hear just like how chicago has like helped grow and and Blip and and you as well
1: yeah absolutely i think coming out of northwestern we were already starting to be plugged into the chicago ecosystem i think one thing that's great about chicago and i'm i'm a Midwestern. Uh, Midwesterner at heart and birth, so I grew up in Nebraska and then moved out to Boston. So definitely feel a bit of a different vibe <laughs> on the coast than you get uh, here in the Midwest, even in a big city like Chicago. I think that the the startup ecosystem here is so supportive um, and and welcoming. Um, it's not it's not exclusive, right? It's not it's not a club that you have to like weasel your way into um which as a first time founder was was really important. I think there's a lot of folks even like I will shout out Gary Cooper, the most busy person that I have ever seen in my entire life. Um but if you really need to get a hold of him like he will find time to have a conversation with you. And I think that that doesn't that doesn't exist everywhere. Um I think that also the manufacturing sort of roots of the area are a great place to build hard tech um, proximity to Argonne National Lab. So Argonne is a partner on our on our Department of Energy grant. We've been able to build a relationship with them through contacts at mHub. Um, so I think it's a really close-knit community. And I think it's also very uh, value driven, and that's not quite the right term. But I think that the Chicago venture market is a little bit more risk averse than Silicon Valley or eh, I'll say, I'll say Silicon Valley. Um, But I think that means you build better businesses. Like I think that that means that like you're, you're getting held to a bit of a higher standard. And ultimately I think that that has helped us build a tougher, better business because the capital isn't just like shooting from the hip.
0: Again, it's that forcing function, right? Yeah. Of doing all that work because you can't if you don't, whereas in other places you might be able to get by on
2: narrative and story. Right. Yeah. And and I like that you said that too, because I really do think a lot of the startups I see that have that um like that risk versus just like isn't here. So like, I mean, it takes it takes a lot to raise capital in the Midwest. And if you do, you are one of the ones that raise it. I think it's setting you up for extreme success going on to future rounds like your series A your B and your C when you're taking investors from the United States, the world, wherever they may be. The yeah. fact that you started in Chicago and you knew how to scale in the Midwest um, just sets you up for so much success in the later stages, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's a scrappy it's a scrappy place to be, but in in the best possible way.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on. I, I think that's it from us, but yeah. it was really fun to talk about that. I love energy and especially mm-hmm. learning from you to hear kind of like, what that space looks like right now, what it takes to build a startup in that space. So that's really cool.
1: Yeah, absolutely.